Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Oh, every day is a difficult day. We talk every day. We share we share conversations about how they're feeling. Uh, you know, they're just having to, the, the events have ended. The funeral, the viewings. Now they're getting having to get on yeah. with things like moving Rachel's belongings out of her house, and that's obviously very tough for their family. Oh. Um, so they're they're having you know they're, every day is a difficult day. Randolph Rice, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll keep an eye out. That does it for us tonight. Banfield starts now. Welcome to Banfield, everyone. It's Thursday night, so is he a hero? What do you suppose is going on in that jail tonight, right? Danilo Cavalcante getting paraded back into... What are the inmates all saying? Are they cheering through the bars as he walks in? Hey, you did it. 14 days. Does he get the commemorative tattoo? What happens when a guy who's been on the outside, when a guy like this gets hauled back in? What's the prison culture? What happens? Does he get a bunch of stripes? Is it like Shawshank? You know, everyone's on his side in there. And then what happens uh, in terms of treatment? What's going on with this guy? He had a bleeding head last we saw him, right? Will he get any privileges? Where is he going to be housed? He's charged with escape, right? But he's technically not guilty till you have a trial. So what do they do? How do they make sure that this like wily five foot escapee isn't going to cause trouble again? Because we know he does. We know he causes trouble. And you know something? He is not the only one out there. <laughs> we've, so, we've been so fixated on Danilo Cavalcante out there in the woods. There are a couple of others out there right now, too. And I am envisioning a lot of the assets, the air assets, the dogs, the horses, the, the, you know, the extra manpower, the drones, the heat-seeking equipment. All, I'm envisioning, like, some movement, right? Maybe a redeployment. And you're about to meet some other guys that are out there right now where they are doing the same thing, looking for super dangerous people who could be knocking on your door and looking for your sawed-off 22. It's serious business, right? It is serious business. So we're going to touch on that tonight. And also, Brian Koberger in court. Um, I am getting increasingly nervous about this, guys. I know that you probably tune into this show because you have, you know, uh, you have an affinity for, you know, true crime. And this is true stuff, right? This may be the last stuff that you get to see of Brian Koberger sitting beside defense counsel in that courtroom. The pitched battle is on about taking the camera out and basically saying to you all, nothing to see here, literally nothing for you to see. Look, I work in TV. I've got a dog in this fight. However, I also have a profound respect for American jurisprudence because it's an open process in this country. God bless this country. It's an open process until it isn't. And right now, that case has been under gag and seal 
And now it might be under the veil of, like, blindness. That's how I look at it, as a person that works in the business of actually bringing you American jurisprudence at its finest, and sometimes at its worst. And it's important that we all know it. It is important that we get to see it. I used to work in countries where you didn't get to see that stuff. Saddam Hussein's Iraq, for one, you know, hooded, gulag, out you go, nobody, nobody to see, nobody to talk, nothing to see here. That is not us. That is not us. We are open. It is our process. We paid for it. We, the people, are actually trying Brian Koberger. So why are we being cut out of the process? Okay, I got a bone to pick about that. Then, oh, wow, Brian Enton was in the courtroom. He has some great observations he's going to bring you. And he also got this incredible scoop. Uh, Left me a little floored. But you will not believe the number of times the Koberger family has gotten on a plane to go to Idaho to visit uh, their brother slash son. Let me just leave it at that. Enton's got this all for you in, in a moment. And then when you think about serial killers, you always think of the rogues gallery like, you know, Dahmer and BTK and Bundy and Gacy. And they're all like infamous, horrible people, right? But there are far more horrible people who have done far worse, horrible serial killing crimes. And somehow, we don't know their names. It got me thinking. Cottingham? Sells? Bitteker? Ray? How do I not know these people? Catherine Ramsland knows them all too well. She is going to join me with her worst of the worst list in a moment. Part one. You will not believe won't believe what these people did and why we don't know about it. Okay, let's start with Danilo Cavalcante. The um, huh, people of Montgomery County, welcome. You have a, a new uh, tenant, <laughs> a new resident at the State Correctional Institution Phoenix, better known as SCI Phoenix. That's where they took him. They took him there. I just keep wondering, what will the reception be, right? After he, uh, you know, was gone for 14 days, are they all going to be cheering and whispering and celebrating the fact that he was drinking from a stream and stealing watermelons to survive from the farmer's fields, burying his poop, right? Are they going to be celebrating this picture? Oh, man, he got away and it took all those guys to get him. This was an exclusive News Nation picture, by the way. At the moment of the arrest, there's that dog, Yoda, took him down, got him. All of this while the family of the woman he murdered was fearing for their life under constant lock and guard 24 hours a day. Are the inmates going to be celebrating that he stole a razor and kept it in his backpack? That literally the, the people searching for him were seven to eight yards away and within earshot of reporters? Like, this is really what happened while he was out there. Are, are the inmates going to be celebrating that with him? I can tell you one thing. He is not back at Chester. <laughs> the reason I know that is because I heard the tone of voice in the DA's uh, presentation when she was like, yeah, not a chance. Have a listen. With escape right now, that's a felony. Where will he go? Not He'll go to a state correctional institution. The one that he was sentenced to? He hadn't been assigned to anyone yet. He was on the way to Smithfield to be assigned to another location. Yeah, he was, but now he's going to be assigned, you know, differently because there's different stuff at stake now. All right, so we do know this. He's in a a specialized observation unit. There he's getting his classification um, and the the security sort of grading. (laughs) It's going to be very different now. Uh, He's in a single cell. 
Um, but he is provided uh, out-of-cell treatment services. He asked to take his meals in his cell, however. They are now working on paperwork for his approved visitor list. So I kept wondering, well, his sister's not going to be on that list because she's got her own troubles, thanks to you, fella. Your actions basically now mean your sister's probably going to be charged. That's what they say for potentially aiding and abetting um, your escape and your fugitive status. And she's also going to be booted out of this country as an illegal because you brought this on her. We're wondering if maybe his mom, Irasima, might be on his visitors list because she thinks he's an angel. Do you want to know what she told the New York Times about him and about the murder of his girlfriend that he stabbed 38 times in front of her kids? This is what she said. Did it happen? It happened. But it happened because of the stranglehold she put on him, the stance she took with him. He had to. He had no other choice. Guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'll say. I want to bring in someone who just served 10 years in the South Carolina prison system where he witnessed several inmates escape only to be captured and brought back in. His name is Paul. He's better known as Jumpsuit Pablo on social media. All right. I couldn't wait to ask you about the culture of the jail facility where they would have hauled him back in. I envision that they're all sort of cheering through the bars as as he's walking because they know exactly uh, who the new inmate is. But you fill me in. Right. You know, as far as the new place, because the old place probably pretty annoyed with them. They had to suffer the ramification, ramifications of that. Uh, anytime an inmate escapes from some place, that whole place is locked down until they catch them. So this new place, uh, totally different story. I mean, they're they're definitely tipping their hats to him. They probably want to hear his story. Uh, they want to hear him tell it a few times. They'd like to pick up some tips. He's done what they could only dream of doing, probably. And, uh, yeah, there, there, there's no ill will uh, between the other inmates and him right now. And if anything... I'll tell you this, they're probably waiting the day where maybe, just maybe, years down the line, he might come back into general population when all this has died down because they got plans for him. I mean, this this is the guy you want going and getting your contraband. When the packages get thrown over, it's a big problem in prisons. It, it's a whole thing. It's a whole conversation. But I, I think they're ready for him to come, and, and they, they, they would love to just talk to him and get, get to know him. So they're going to find this kind of guy useful. They're going to be rubbing their hands together and and find oh, him yeah. to be an asset. I, I mean, he's a good escape artist, but why does he why does he, why is he useful now to them? Well, not not now, but you know, these guys got nothing but time now. There's many people who've escaped that I've come across who they're in the same place as me when I was in prison. I never escaped. See, when that heat dies down, they only have so much room for these high risk, high security threat inmates, and then they have more immediate inmates who are. And they got to move them. They got to circulate them. And when all the eyes are off them, even if it's years down the line, that could be the moment he goes back into, you know, around these other inmates. And that's when they're going to want him, even if it's not an escape. You still got to get through these fences to pick up these big packages of contraband, which is the reason why there's so much in these prisons. And he's the who better than him to to, to get around these corners unseen, get through these fences and get it and bring it back. Right. Little guy. Uh, What about privileges? Because, you know, again, I'm the neophyte here, but I just assume that he will have zero privileges uh, given what he's just put everybody through. Right. And uh, definitely for the for the foreseeable future. You know, um, I know they got him in a a maximum right now. The best thing to do with this guy is to go ahead and get him classified and, and send him to what's called a supermax prison. Those prisons are a step above maximum security. They're designed to hold guys like this. And then he won't be a threat. But if he's still in a max, uh, just like you showed a picture of the facility he's at, you notice there's tables and seats out in this common area 
where, you know, once you come out of the cells, if those are even there, that, that tells you he's allowed to come out and he has time outside his cell. And that's for a guy like this, that that's, I just think that's a little too much. I mean, he could do it again. Well, right now they're saying he has to take meals uh, in his cell. That says to me, right. he's probably in there for the 23 hours. And then you oh, get yeah. your one hour out to do your shower, or your exercise, that kind of thing. If you're taking meals in the cell, Casey Anthony style. Um, I have a question for you. I'm so fascinated by jail culture, but you know, the tattoos, they are so meaningful. Uh, and there's a little messaging for a lot of people, you know, in prisons with their tattoos. Is there any tattoo to connote that you have escaped, that you actually made it out? Is there any tattoo to show that you've escaped and get out? Yeah. Is there a tattoo? Because, you know, the teardrop, well, a lot of people say the teardrop, yeah. you know, right. connotes that you've killed a person, etc. It's not always true. Right. But is there a tattoo right. that you get? You know, if you're one of the successful escapees, even if you were brought back in, is there a tattoo? Is there some is there some culture I don't know about? Uh, it's not a, it's not a common thing like it is just, a, you know, a, a common known thing like you're right about the teardrop tattoo. But there's nothing like that in that same sense. Now, he may get one personally just because, you know, if he's prideful of it or proud of it. But no, it's it's not. A common thing uh, as far as a tattoo to get something on you once you've escaped, even if you've been caught or not. And then one last quick question. I only have 10 seconds, but um, will the guards treat him any different? I know that people are probably pretty annoyed with him. Um, will they make an example of him in any way? Uh, I think so. I'm confident they will and they better. I mean, he, you know, he took these guys on a two week manhunt. He went out there and ran circles a lot of, around a lot of people, and, and they have to make an example of him. And that the best way they can do that and keep everyone safe is once he's through this classification process and they decide where to send him, it needs to be a supermax and not just a maximum security. Well, I'd be just so fascinated to be a fly on the wall right now, but you're the best <laughs> help uh, to sort of get in there at best we can. Pablo, thank you so much. Jumpsuit Pablo joining us live. Look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much. All right. Um, there is something else while they're you know working on all of his paperwork and his visitors list and everything else. Um, remember, I said I was really wondering about the movement of the assets, right? The the, the choppers, the aerial um, you know uh, aircraft that they've used with the heat seeking thermal imaging gear, uh, the the mounted patrols, the just manpower, the guys out there with all their gear in the hot. You know, Pennsylvania afternoons, uh, the d canines. Like, there's just there's just so much of a of a mobilization that came to bear on finding him. What happens now? Like, will they parse it out and get going on other manhunts? Because guess what? I have a little list for you right now out there somewhere. Christopher Haynes, suspected of killing another man. He's on the run. He escaped in the weirdest way that he escaped the D.C. police. OK, he's the one in the middle there. He was at the George Washington University Hospital saying that his ankle hurt, said he had an ankle injury and he got away. They've got a reward on that guy in the middle right there for thirty thousand uh, dollars. Here's something that you can keep your eye out for in that part of the country. He's got a Washington Nationals tattoo on his throat. That's a dead giveaway. Washington Nationals tattoo on his throat. He was last seen in a T-shirt, shorts, socks. He may still also have a handcuff on his right wrist from where he escaped the hospital in D.C. The George 
Washington University Hospital. So there's one manhunt. That guy's still out there. And then Rachel Marin's killer, the guy on the far right, Rachel Marin's killer, still being hunted in Hartford County, Maryland. DNA linked him in March to a, a home invasion and an assault of a, of a young person, a young girl in Los Angeles. He was seen on camera. That's the best image we have of him right there. But he is out there. They are hunting him. And they say that it is only a matter of time before he kills again. And then the guy on the left, this one's really interesting. Jason Dockery, uh, Union County, Tennessee. I was all set to bring you the story of this manhunt um, because he's also, you know, considered really, really dangerous, armed and dangerous. But we got some good news earlier today in Lee County, Virginia. Uh, he was wanted in connection with the shooting death of a woman. Uh, there had been a big police car chase. He escaped out into the woods and he'd been there for, for two days doing the same thing that Cavalcante was doing. But this afternoon, after two days on the run, they caught him. They caught Jason Dockery over there on the left. But there are enormous assets that go into these manhunts, and millions and millions of dollars. So what happens with Cavalcante's assets? Joining me now, John Muffler. He once oversaw the U.S. Marshals who captured Cavalcante. He is the former Assistant Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Now owns a security consulting company. You have been so in the know. Literally, you're the guy I turn to at every minute throughout this entire um, manhunt for Cavalcante. And then it turns out, I mean, our attention was on Cavalcante and these other guys are all out there. What happens with all the gear? Do they all now sort of fan out and start helping these other jurisdictions? Uh, yeah, thanks again for having me back on. The, the, you know, these task forces that the Marshal Service have uh, nationwide are, are probably the best in the business, uh, if not nationally, globally at tracking fugitives and working with state, local, and other federal partners to execute those warrants. So, uh, and, and the beauty of the Marshal Service is, um, you know, jurisdiction is once we deputize these other agencies, they're able to, you know, cr cross boundaries and state lines, et cetera. So the equipment and everything that's being used, obviously it's going back to where it came from, but the lessons that have been learned from this escape and past escapes certainly within the marshal service and the task forces they have nationally in that in those areas you just showed on the on the screen uh, that information will be shared at some point you know the success of uh, Cavalcanti for those two weeks and the success of you know the multi-agency uh, task force that um, caught him that'll all be shared so john Bear with me for one moment, because, you know, we were talking a lot about the thermal imaging assets and the canine assets. And, you know, it turned out that those were the two really important linchpins in finding Cavalcante. So I wanted to put together some of the examples because we haven't yet gotten any video in yet of the and we may never see it. But I'm really hoping that they release the, you know, the thermal imaging um, shots that they got of him and then the body cams uh, from the canine uh, takedown. But I do have some other ones. So I want to start and ask my control room if they can just show some of the pictures that we compiled of other thermal imaging takedowns of bad guys. So let me roll that, and then I'm going to talk to you on the other side. Take a look. Okay, he's running back westbound into the backyard, 25 Barlow, hopping a fence. Okay, he's on the front porch. He's proned out on the front porch, 7112. Come up on the, yeah, he's got left, on your left. Turn left, left. Okay, foot pursuit, 7112's in foot pursuit. Okay, he's got him down. Canine there, 10 meters to your left.
Okay, there's three, and they're all surrendering. Okay, drivers, I would run it towards the river here. And uh, he's angling uh, along the river. Uh, just along the road over here, headed uh, eastbound. Whoever four one, we're gonna get rolls ranges really. November 207, Tramp, this is Hannes, just along the vehicle in the area. Okay, guys, guys. In between you guys there. I just. I can never get enough of that stuff, um, and I can never get enough of the canine work as well, because as it turns out, he was only seven to eight yards away from some of these searchers at times, and they just like literally walked right past him in the blackness, but you can't do that with a canine. So I also compiled some of the amazing uh, success stories of canine work, so I'm going to play that too. Take a look. There he goes. Oh, he's making his run. Is it? Oh, the dog got him. Oh, oh, that must be painful. Oh, I love that. Canine is making contact, helping the suspect to comply. Get away from the dog. Yogs, here. Here. Good boy, Yogs. Hold him, man. You find the man. Good boy. Good me, Yogs. Good boy, buddy. Good job. Good job, buddy. Good boy. Good boy. Good job. Put your hand by your back. Oh, John Muffler, I just love it when they catch the bad guy like that. I, can, I, just, I could watch that all night, literally. But I do want to ask you the serious question of how did, it, how did the dogs in the thermal imaging uh, not catch Cavalcante for 14 days? Well, I, I don't think the, uh, the, the FLIR technology was up in the very beginning. You know, this was an actual manhunt. Uh, officers out in the woods. Uh, looking for him, trying to you know get eye contact or, or listen for him. I think that took a couple of days to get the, that that resource up and flying. And once that happened, you know you need certain um, environmental factors to help you out. The pictures you were just showing, it seemed pretty clear. It's really hard to tell what the weather would be like in in those images you showed. But I know up in Pennsylvania, you know we saw fog that one night. There was there were storms another night. There was rain. So that is going to impact the, how good that FLIR technology is, and that stands for forward-looking infrared. So it can't look forward if the weather is a factor there. But clearly these images are, are, are pretty awesome. That was an amazing tackle, by the way. Um, so, yeah, they're super helpful. But it took a little time to get that resource up and running, and once it was up and running, it was able to work better. Of course, he kept moving, kept finding uh, you know, new places to hide, and you know that that fleet that technology is not seeing uh, a body heat if he's hiding in uh, drainage ditches. And I think they've learned, especially in Longwood Gardens in that area, he initially was hiding that there is some underground piping that uh, I even think the officers weren't aware of at that time. So, and then he got That's the vehicle and went to and another area. And he was breaking into houses, and we learned that there were some disturbed areas that looked like he'd been sleeping. So there's a you know He's there's a good reason that maybe they couldn't see him. 
Right. He's not going to see through a wall. He's not going to well, see through a house. So. You, you'd also think it's the homeowner sleeping in there, too. John, you've been right. so great. Thank you so much for all the, uh, the all the help, all your guidance through this one. And I am calling you instantly, not just for the next uh, manhunt, but for every other Marshall's issue. I got issue. an idea Thank for you. a tattoo, if I can throw it out there for Cavalcanti. He, he can get a Yoda tattoo on his head. <laughs> that is perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what he should get is Yoda. Thank you. Good to see you. Love it. John Muffler reporting for us. I appreciate it. Still to come, it is a debate that we keep having, but we're having it way too much. Cameras in the courtroom. And it is raging now in the Brian Koberger case. Prosecution and defense both say no cameras. But the victim's families, many of them, want the cameras. Wait a minute. Isn't the prosecution supposed to be on their side? Their advocates? This is really weird. What about transparency? And by the way... Guess how many times Brian Koberger's family has flown out and checked in to see him in that jail? That answer next and our own Brian Enton in a moment. If Brian Koberger's lawyers get their way, there is not going to be a public trial on television. You will not be able to see it unless you fly there. And even then, you probably won't get in. That's the argument in the courtroom. They say it's sensationalistic and prejudicial, the headlines and the content that are out there. And the prosecution's not really fighting them on it. They don't want the cameras either. But the families, some of them, they really do. They say that everything has been shrouded in secrecy. Brian... um, Well, Brian Koberger, we know what he wants. Brian Enton, however, was in that courtroom and was watching all of these arguments going back and forth. Uh, So the big question for Brian Enton would be, did they come to any resolution? Ashley, the judge did not make a decision officially about whether cameras will get to stay in the Brian Koberger courtroom, uh, but it was an interesting hearing, especially hearing from the judge, because we kind of knew that the defense and prosecution both didn't want the cameras. We didn't know exactly what the judge was thinking, and he talked a lot about it today, even though he didn't make a decision. Uh, He basically said that uh, he's not a huge fan of cameras. He didn't seem like a very big fan of the media in general, by the way, especially when it comes to the Koberger case, but he he said the cameras can add to speculation, uh, and that even though he felt like the photographer and the reporters in the courtroom uh, were mostly responsible that people on social media can then zoom into the video and zoom into the pictures, and he had an issue with that. Uh, An attorney representing the media coalition who's fighting to keep the cameras argued a lot that um, it's important to have cameras for transparency so the public can see exactly what's going on, so that people on the Internet can't manipulate the truth and say, oh, this happened in court, oh, this is what Brian Koberger looked like, when that's not really the case. People, responsible news consumers should be able to watch the video for themselves and see the real video of what's happening uh, inside the courtroom. Uh, Interestingly, um, one of the Koberger uh, victims, Kaylee Gonzalez, uh, her dad, Steve, told me that that he agrees, that he feels like the cameras should stay uh, for the sake of transparency and that he feels like this entire thing has been too secretive from the beginning. But again, it was interesting to hear the back and forth in court, especially what the judge uh, thinks about all of this. Uh, Take a listen. And the classic is O.J. Simpson. So they're 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 saying, oh, this is this is great. This is great work we did, you know, filming this. But if anybody watched any part of that case, it was a circus. So that that is that is one of the concerns. In in this particular case, we have um, a lot of interest 
and we have a lot of people that you can't control, that your clients can't control, and they are uh, putting out stuff that is harmful. So we'll just have to wait and see how the judge uh, rules on this. He could keep the camera where it is, which is sort of behind the prosecution table. He could move the camera, the pool camera, to the to the back behind the um, the audience, uh, or he could take cameras out altogether. Maybe there'll be an audio feed, like we saw with Lori Vallow. We'll just have to wait and see uh, how he rules, and we're not sure exactly when he's going to make that ruling. Also, I have some interesting exclusive information about Brian Koberger, uh, who's still in the Latah County Jail behind me. Uh, I have learned that his family still has not visited him here. Uh, in Idaho. They have not made a visit to the jail. We know his, his parents live in Pennsylvania. They have not come to the jail to visit him. There have been phone calls uh, between family members and Brian Koberger, but there have not been uh, a lot of calls uh, at this point. I've also learned uh, that Brian Koberger uh, is, is a model prisoner. Uh, we're, we've heard from sources that, you know, he doesn't cause any problems in the jail um, and that, uh, you know, he's just kind of does his thing in his cell and then goes to and from the hearings. Uh, in the hearing that just happened here in uh, in Moscow, he was in a suit, uh, sort of like we've seen with other times. He came in, he sat between his lawyers, he was in a green tie in a suit, sort of looked straight ahead. He was brought in right before the hearing started, uh, and then they took him out right when the hearing ended. Ashley? Wow. Not one visit. Not one family visit. And we are now in almost, what, nine and a half months since he's been locked up? Not one visit from his family. It's astounding. Okay, uh, so there is still another hearing coming a a week from tomorrow. That's Friday, September 22nd. They're going to go over a motion to dismiss the charges. Just just get rid of this old silly old case. Just dismiss it. (laughs) That's the motion. On the grounds of a biased grand jury, inadmissible evidence, lack of sufficient evidence, and prosecutorial misconduct by withholding exculpatory evidence. I cannot wait to hear the tongue lashing or not that the judge is going to give on that. Um, But this whole thing... It's been pretty frustrating, given that the gag order may result in an even more um, cloaked case. I never like that. Open justice. Okay, so coming up. You may think that infamy and serial murder actually goes hand in hand, and why wouldn't you? Because look at, you know, Dahmer and Bundy or Son of Sam and all those really choice citizens. Uh, But they don't. They don't go hand in hand. For every John Wayne Gacy, there is a demented and bloodthirsty David Parker Ray. Serial killers whose names have flown way under the radar until now. We're going to run down some of the worst of the worst. We're going to put names to their notoriously evil faces. Next. You know, when it comes to serial killers, there are just standout names, right? Like, I could do the list here. Dahmer, Bundy, Night Stalker, Zodiac, Green River. But I would not list among them Cottingham and Cells. <laughs> I don't know those names at all. And I work in crime. Why don't I? Why do I only know all these famous faces? Because apparently um, these horrible serial killers might not even be as horrible as the next people uh, I'm going to discuss. And there is nobody better to discuss this with than Dr. Catherine Ramsland. She's a professor of forensic psychology and author of the book Confession of a Serial Killer. Dr. Ramsland, why is it that I don't know some of the names of people who may be arguably worse than the Bundys and the Dahmers and the Zodiacs of the world? Why, why do the other ones fly under the radar? Often it's about timing. It's about the victims they choose. It's about some of the things they do. And sometimes it's about their race. 
Well, can I go over a couple with you and maybe tell me why, like, who is Lawrence Bitteker, the, the toolbox killer, and what is his story? Well, he was called the toolbox killer. He, he did this with another killer, and he had a toolbox full of hammers, um, ice picks, and uh, pliers. He, he actually had the nickname pliers, and he'd use the pliers on these young women that they kidnapped on their vulnerable places to make them scream so he could record it and listen to it later. Jeez. What about David Parker Ray? Now, it's not toolbox, it's toy box. It's just a little bit different, but toy box killer. What's he all about? Well, he actually had a, con- a soundproof container box that filled with torture instruments. He loved mind games. I actually saw one of his the videos he took of, of torturing one of his victims. He would keep them in a, in a coffin. He would show them the things he had done to prior victims so that they knew what was coming. And then he would use all these different instruments on them from his toy box. And then this other name, I, again, don't know it, um, Joseph Vachet. Uh, he was France's Jack the Ripper. Yeah, Vachet is very uh, interesting. He would wander the countryside of France. This is just a few years after Jack the Ripper, and nobody knew who Jack the Ripper was. So they wondered if this might be Jack the Ripper leaving London and going to France. He would find these young shepherds, usually teenagers, who were alone, nobody no witnesses, and he would strangle them, mutilate them, uh, gut them, rape them, um, do horrible things to them, and then have sex with the bodies. Jeez, it's hard to fathom um, the behaviors of so many of them, and this is your business. You live in this world. What what in your mind makes um, some of these serial killers worse than the others like what's your sort of hit list for what classifies them as really truly the the lowest of the low the the planning of the torture the the pleasure they get out of uh, making people feel maximum pain for the longest possible time before they die and then to use ways to relive that over and over again to feel powerful because someone else has suffered at their hands and can I also ask you what's what's worse? I think physical pain, but the psychological pain, um, that's also something pretty significant. You know, BTK, I think one of the issues um, about his, you know, predilection was that he enjoyed the moment that the victim saw it coming, that the bag was going over the head and they saw that they were about to suffocate. That was what he used to like the most. Am I wrong? That's the, that is what he liked, but he liked the binding. He liked their helplessness. And and yet I still think the kinds of physical pain that, like, if you put an ice pick through someone's ear who's alive and you stomp on it, I think that's a lot worse. It's really horrible. Yeah. No, you're right. It's amazing. I can't believe that you do this, like, you know, day in, day out. You're made of steel. Uh, you're a remarkable woman. This is just part one, Dr. Ramsland. I, um, I can't wait till you come back next week with part two. There's a couple of other examples that uh, they're just, you know, they're spine chilling. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I always love Dr. Ramsland. Um, You should know also she is the um, definitive expert in the world of serial killers. Um, She's the author of the book, you know, that we mentioned before on serial killers. And uh, let's see, Confessions of Serial Killer. There you go. Confession of of a Serial Killer. The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. All right. Still to come. Um, Alex Murdoch. 
I don't know if you saw it. He was walking back into a courtroom for the first time since we saw him uh, sentenced, right? Sentenced for killing his wife and son. And he looked really different this time. Um, he certainly looked different than the mugshot when they shaved his head, right? He was completely bald. This was standard. They weren't trying to humiliate him. This was what the jail did. But that's not what he looked like today. No. Today, he was actually strangely smiling a lot, except for one moment. And then the smile really just dropped. I'm going to tell you why. And then I'm also going to tell you what we think his attorneys might have up their sleeve um, with their planning. And tomorrow's a big day. I'll let you know why in a moment. like super excited to see um, the devolution of, you know, criminals and inmates and all the rest, because I kind of want to see if the prison system's hard, right? We send them to prison and we kind of want it to not be great. And can you see it on their face? So when I hear, oh, Alex Murdoch's going to be walking into a courtroom, I'm on the edge of my seat popping popcorn. (laughs) So Alex Murdoch walked into a courtroom today and he came through the side door, not the back door, of course. He's in an orange jumpsuit. He's got the shackles. See the wrists and the feet. He's shuffling because he's got the shackles and the feet. You can see the belt on the back. It's got the shackles, too. Like, you're shackled to your waist, right? You can't even move your arms, and your feet are shackled, too, and everything's connected. And So he sits down, and he sees his lawyers, uh, Jim Griffin and Dick Harputlian, and he addresses the judge and sits down. He's got His hair has grown out. Definitely his hair has grown out from the bald picture that we saw in the mugshot when he checked in uh, in the spring. Uh, looks like he might have even gotten a haircut since then. Not sure. And he was pretty smiley, too, until uh, one very important moment when the smile just disappeared. And that was the moment where the side eye came because Creighton Waters, the prosecutor, started talking and the smiles ended. You can definitely see Murdoch is all serious. Doesn't like it. Today, this is not about the whole, you know, did he or did he not murder his wife and was the trial fair or not? Let's throw the trial out. No, that was not today. Today, it's like round one of the financial crimes, uh, the the hundred or so charges of financial crimes that he has to still stand trial for. But you would think that he'd plead guilty because he said it on the stand during his murder trial. He just said he committed the crime. But no, he's not pleading guilty. Uh, He didn't speak at all today, in fact, that there is a trial date November 27th coming. That's for round one of all those charges. Um, I want to bring in Gigi McKelvey, the host of Pretty Lies and Alibis, the podcast, because she uh, notices everything. And I think, Gigi, you noticed something unique about his demeanor in court today. It was a little different from sitting in that trial for six weeks. He did come in smiling, but, you know, kind of in the meat of the hearing, you just saw a little bit of a different Alec Murdoch. He did not look quite as as sure of himself as he did during the murder trial. You know, maybe a few months in prisons hardened him a bit. But, yeah, I mean, we all notice. We call that the stink eye here in South Carolina where you give somebody that look. And, man, it lingered for a minute. So, But I just noticed he seemed a little fidgety at times, uh, which we did not see a lot during the murder trial. So I just noticed, uh, you know, a very big difference in his overall body language and demeanor today. He had some transport. Like, this is not a short uh, trip to this particular jurisdiction, right? 
Correct. He is being housed um, in around the Columbia, South Carolina area. This was in Beaufort County, which is over three hours. And so I was kind of wondering with with an early morning hearing, did they maybe bring him in last night? I don't know. But, yeah, it's it's quite a little haul from from where he's in prison to to Beaufort, where this hearing was today. Okay, I want to like, listen, I'm interested in the financial crimes, but not as much as this business about jury tampering and was the trial fair and is the trial going to get thrown out? And oh, my God, are we going to go through it all again? So let's let's just talk about the seriousness of of what his lawyers have. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, is it three jurors that they have um, spoken to who've signed affidavits saying there was funny business or is it more? I believe it's two, maybe three at the most. Uh, the rest, according to Dick Harpootley and at the press conference, said they had a lot of doors slammed in their face. So it seems like we just have maybe, you know, a small handful, which is is going to be interesting to see if this goes to an evidentiary hearing and we get all 12 of those jurors up on the stand. And what I thought was interesting, Ashley, is during that press conference, they mentioned that when this broke, somebody had texted the juror group chat that they have who's talking so i thought that was very interesting as if to say hey which one of you guys is talking to the you know to the defense attorneys that that sounds contentious um they they have not sworn under oath though it's important i only have about 20 seconds left but they have not sworn under oath yet that would come in an evidentiary hearing is that correct yeah these were just affidavits uh sworn affidavits but they were not you know in court under oath that's a whole other kettle of fish. So, okay. And then real quickly, um, when, if there is going to be a retrial, like they wouldn't have it in the same jurisdiction. Were they talking about moving it or has anybody even uh, broached that topic? They have not. I can't imagine they would have it in Colleton County again. And, you know, just my way of thinking, not even in the low country. I've said I'm crossing my fingers for Greenville yeah. so I can be in my home and my own bed every night. But just this morning, uh, Judge Newman rattled off a lot of counties for these financial crimes as an option. So maybe they'll go that route. Uh, Colleton, Hampton, Orangeburg, Beaufort, Allendale. There are a lot of smaller jurisdictions down there. So we'll just have to wait and see. Tomorrow, the attorney general will respond to the defense's motion for a new trial with these allegations of jury tampering. That's the next big thing I'm waiting on over here. Would love to do that van trip to all those places. <laughs> Gigi McKelvey, thank you so much. Hosted Pretty Lies and Alibis. One of the best podcasters out there. Thank you, girl. Thank you. All right. They say never book, uh, judge a book by its cover, right? But you just go ahead. You just go ahead and judge all you want right here. Because this guy, he, he says he did it. He actually just says he's guilty of sin. Wait until you hear what he's guilty of. And I'm going to warn you that there are warnings coming straight ahead. Warning, a photo coming of a guy that you cannot unsee. His name is Jeremy Polly. He's 41 years old. And for job, he lists human blood artist. He hails from Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't think he likes long walks on the beach. Um, and he just pleaded guilty to trafficking in human remains. So here we go. Uh, his mugshot is about as shocking as the charges. He's cop to buying body parts illegally sourced from the Harvard Medical School and from a mortuary in Arkansas. And we're not just talking any body parts. We're talking heads and brains and skin and bones. Uh, they'd been donated to Harvard for research, but Polly told the judge that he knew that they'd been stolen and he'd admitted to reselling some of them himself. 
There were six other choice citizens uh, indicted in the case back in June. One of them was the ex-morgue manager at Harvard and uh, his wife. Their trials are still pending. Body parts were stolen as far back as 2018. He's facing 15 years, by the way, behind bars. And we will let you know when he's sentenced and if he has a new mugshot. Thank you for watching. Cuomo's next. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We're live. Yep. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.